Hello and welcome to Tully's Take on History. Uh, I'm Dr. Stuart Tully, and today I'm going to be taking kind of an interesting look, uh, kind of a biography of an individual whose life overlaps with a lot of other important individuals. This past week I happened to watch The, um, the Irishman on Netflix, the new Martin Scorsese film. Now, going in, I, I didn't really know too much about the movie. I knew it was a Scorsese movie. I knew Robert De Niro was in it. It was apparently like it's going to be like three and a half hours long. But I knew nothing about the backstory. And it was interesting because, you know, I start watching it and it seems to be this kind of an explanation of the 1960s and 70s, Jimmy Hoffa's life. And Robert De Niro pays, plays this, this Irish individual who, uh, he's, he's involved in a lot of different stuff. There's a lot of different overlap. And I was surprised when I did a little bit of research after I watched the movie that he was based on a real individual. And all the people that he overlapped with, like his life with Jimmy Hoffa and things, uh, that was actually accurate. I call this the Forrest Gump principle. Um, now, Forrest Gump is a fictional character, but sometimes in history you have these individuals who bridge a lot of different areas. They overlap with a lot of different things, a lot of different time periods. They show up in the lives of other different people, and they're fascinating. Uh, one is William Jennings Bryan, who I'll probably do a show on later. Uh, he's around for several decades. He overlaps with everything. But the one I'm going to be talking about today is that he's a lesser-known individual, but still worthy of examination. His name is Harry Pace, and he's kind of the Forrest Gump of early 20th century black America. He... He is all over the place. He is involved in so many different things, has a very fascinating life. Now, I happen to um, have a book coming out next year in which Harry Pace pays a pretty prominent role in the first third, and I'm going to be drawing a little bit from my research in that for talking about today's podcast. So Harry Pace, um, he's best known for my research for being the head of Black Swan Records. Black Swan is, the well, one of the first African-American-owned record labels, period, but um, especially one of the first African-American, sorry, the first African-American-owned record label with large international distribution. Now, Harry Pace, he was born on January 6, 19, sorry, 1884 in Covington, Georgia. He is the son of a... Um, Carpenter, as I believe. Uh, he is what is called at the time a quadroon. A quadroon is somebody uh, of their four grandparents, one of whom is African American, three of whom are white. I believe his father was half African American, half white, and his mother was completely white, but that is. that's a little nefarious. We don't know entirely. We do know that his father died while he was fairly young. And he started doing some carpentry, but he really showed a lot of skill in academics. Now, in 1884, it is post-Reconstruction. It is early modernity. And there are some opportunities for bright African-American young men. And as a quadroon, um, Harry Pace would have been considered African-American. So even though he's doing carpentry and, you know, his, he's, you know, he's only have, has his mother, who his mother doesn't last that long either. Pretty much for most of his life, once he becomes a young man, he's pretty much entirely on his own. Uh, he does a lot of stuff with his wife's family early on, later on, but he does nothing with his own family. 
He does have a brother who shows up later, moves to Texas, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Actually, a lot later. <laughs> now, Pace was very intelligent. Uh, he finishes um, primary school, basically um, somewhere around 8th, ninth, 10th grade, somewhere there. Uh, it, it differed on the area. The South does not have a great public education system in this time period. But he finishes school at age 12, and he moves on to Atlanta University, which is a African-American university in Atlanta, uh, one of many schools that opened around Atlanta that uh, focus upon educating black students. And he actually graduates as valedictorian from Atlanta University in 1903 at age 19. So he's, he's very young when he's doing this. Uh, to pay for college, he serves as a printer's apprentice, or a printer's devil, it gets pretty good at writing. Um, very good at writing. He's, he's always been a very good writer. Uh, skilled at the classics. Um, he knows Greek and Latin fairly well. In fact, one of his first jobs is um, serving as a Greek and Latin um, teacher at a, at, a, at a university. Now, at Atlanta University, he meets one of the first big names. And let me tell you, there's going to be a lot of big names throughout Pace's life. Uh, one of his teachers is W.E.B. Du Bois, or Du Bois. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm never consistent with if I call him Du Bois or Du Bois. One of the two. Uh, du Bois, if you don't know who Du Bois is, he's a very, very, very honking big deal in African-American history. He is a major big deal. Um, one of the founders of the Niagara Movement, which would later become the NAACP. Uh, he, he lives until the 60s. He's a major influence on... Thought in general, I mean, he writes The Souls of Black Folks, um, very big in sociology and African-American studies. He's very, very important in the black world. He's probably, uh, in, the, in this time period, probably in the top two or three of most influential African-Americans on Earth, I would say. Uh, especially later on, once he gets in, you know, he starts having his, his um, debates with Booker T. Washington and much later on with Marcus Garvey. Uh, at this time period, though, Dubois is just working at uh, Clark University. He's a professor. And Dubois kind of takes... He's He really takes a shining to young Harry Pace. Uh, Dubois is unique because he was never born a slave. He was born to free parents. He's actually of mixed race, like Pace. Uh, he's born in Boston. Uh, he's the first African-American to get a PhD from Harvard. Uh, very intelligent individual. And he really takes a shining to Pace. I, I wouldn't quite say that Pace is uh, Dubois's protege, but Dubois is definitely a mentor, and he definitely thinks highly of Pace's ability. Uh, after graduation, Pace becomes a teacher at the Haynes Institute in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, there he was like an English teacher, basic instructor. He moves to Memphis in 1904 to aid in the launch of a literary magazine, the Moon Illustrated Weekly. Now, the Moon Illustrated Weekly is a very important literary magazine. It's started by Dubois. It would later revamp and be known as The Crisis, which was the NAACP's major publication. Now, The Crisis is very important in African-American history, it's, it's, it's one of these just, like, great literary magazines uh, up there with newspapers like the Chicago Defender. 
It's serving a nationwide African-American audience. And Dubois wants to start this new magazine, this new venture, and he leans upon, you know, Pace is like 20 years old at this point, leans upon Pace to do it. He thinks so highly of it that he really wants to do this. Problem is, the Moon Illustrated Weekly does not have great circulation at first, only has between 250 and 500 subscribers. Uh, even though Dubois wants it to sell uh, nationally, it really only sells in Memphis and Atlanta. Now, after the failure of the Moon Illustrated Weekly, Pace moves to Jefferson City, Missouri, um, where he takes a job at the Lincoln Institute, which is a, it's a black university in, uh, in Jefferson City, as professor of Greek and Latin. Uh, Pace was classically trained. Um, Pace's own writing, when we get into his songwriting and stuff, um, when he's not writing pop tunes, he, he writes pretty highfalutin stuff. Um, there's one he wrote about his mother, which I, I really find quite... Um, it, it's touching, I'll say that. Now, Pace stays at this college for about one year before he takes on a job as a cashier at Solvent Savings Bank, which is a black bank in Memphis. Uh, in this time period, most banks were segregated. If an African-American wanted to use a bank, um, most white banks wouldn't let them. Now, banks are important for various reasons. It's a good way to keep your money safe, but also it's a good way to get money. If you want to start a business or buy a house, you need to borrow money from a bank most of the time because most people don't have the cash lying around to get a mortgage or afford a, you know, afford a business in of itself. And so uh, Solvent Savings is one of these blanks, banks in Memphis, and Memphis is a growing city in this time period. Memphis explodes in population after Reconstruction, with a lot of people from the Mississippi Delta, which is a very highly African-American concentrated area in terms of population, are moving to Memphis for job opportunities. Uh, there's a joke that the largest cities in Mississippi are outside of the state. Uh, Memphis and New Orleans tend to have a fairly, and Birmingham, tend to have a fairly large Mississippi population. Now, as cashier at Solvent Savings, um, Pace does a pretty good job. He, he brings up the bank's assets considerably. Uh, during Pace's five years, he brings up their assets from $500,000 to $600,000. Now, some of that is Pace. Also, some of it is the bank owner who would later go to prison for fraud. So there might be some exaggeration of these numbers. <laughs> uh, in addition to working at the bank, uh, Pace also does the Sunday circuit. Uh, he would go to churches our little highfalutin soirees and sing songs, you know, write, recite poetry and things. Um, Pace is one of this growing African-American middle class. And I say growing, it's still a very small number. But, you know, 20 years earlier, outside of New Orleans, everybody who was African-American was a slave, pretty much. Uh, there was a very small free black population, let alone free African-Americans of color, well, African-Americans of color. <laughs> People of color with means is a very, very small, small number uh, before the 1880s, 1890s. They're growing percentage-wise, but it's still a fairly small number. And that's actually going to be one of these issues. Um, 
later on we talk about the failure of Pace's of Black Swan Records, is because he's really appealing to a small group. Now, the reason why Pace is doing so well in music is that he makes a friend at the bank, which is just one of these crazy coincidences. But the great musician, composer, and band leader, W.C. Handy, uses Solvent Savings Bank and gets to know Pace. Uh, Handy would later describe Pace as, quote, a handsome young man of striking personality and definite music leanings, and, quote, had written some first-rate song lyrics and was also in demand as a solo vocalist at Sunday programs and church Sunday night concerts. The two begin collaborating in 1907 and published their first song together, in, uh, which was called In the Cotton Fields of Old Dixie in the same year. Uh, this song marks the beginning of the partnership between Pace and Handy. Uh, they become music par- business partners in 1912. Uh, they start a sheet publishing company called Pace and Handy Music Company. Uh, and this enterprise was to be a part-time job for Pace. He was supposed to keep his job at the bank because it you know, paid a little, little bit better. And also Pace becomes Handy's business manager. Uh, WC Handy, if you're unfamiliar with him, he is known as the father of the blues. Now, is he the one who actually invents the blues? No, he's not. However, is he the first one to like publish blues music and get it played and get notoriety? Yes, he is. Um, uh, Handy is born in Florence, well, right outside Florence, Alabama, which I went to with my wife on a lovely vacation. Um, you ever get a chance to go to Florence, Alabama? I'd, I'd recommend it. It's a nice place. Uh, Handy has a pretty interesting life, and the first hit for this new company is called the Memphis Blues. It's um, it's released in 1912, and it really launches this company into huge notoriety. Um, it was written by Handy, but also Pace himself. Um, also, the St. Louis Blues is written by Handy. Uh, in fact, the, the St. Louis NHL hockey team is called the St. Louis Blues in honor of the song, and also the blues music comes from New War- uh, from St. Louis. Uh, much later on in life, uh, whenever he's under oath for a trial, which we're going to talk about later, Pace mentions to the judge, oh yeah, I wrote St. Louis Blues, which is a pretty cool song. Uh, they publish other genres too, blues songs, ballads, novelty songs. Uh, there's a there's a pretty well-known staff that Pace and Handy have. Uh, William Grant Still is the head arranger. Um, he becomes pretty known as a musician. Uh, the company moves for New York in 1918. Uh, in this time period, uh, this company has about 15 to 20 employees, including Fletcher Henderson, who's, uh, we're going to talk about him more later, but he's a pretty also a pretty big deal in music. Uh, they really kind of play up the fact that Pace and Handy are both black, but also they're, they're respectable black. Um, there is this air of respectability which really permeates Pace's being. He's basically trying to assure audiences that, yes, we might be African-American, but we're, we're, we're good. We're not low class. We're, we're of high, we're of highness. Uh, the ads in, for Pace and Handy say that, you know, they're the leading colored publisher and, quote, they are a credit to their race. Now, Pace doesn't really leave the Enterprise totally until 1920. Sorry, doesn't devote himself totally to the Enterprise until 1920 uh, when he leaves the bank for it. Um, It's also interesting in this time period 
that W.E. Dubois offers um, the crisis to Pace. Uh, the crisis is NAACP's literary magazine. Uh, he doesn't take the offer. Now, what's really interesting is that after leaving the bank, Pace does not go directly to the Pace and Handy Music Company full-time. Uh, he takes a job as the secretary treasurer of the Standard Life Insurance Company based in Atlanta. Now, life insurance, kind of like banking, is another segregated industry in this time period. Uh, most African-American life insurance companies really deal with death benefits. Um, that's the main one. Death benefits and also pensions. That seems to be the main interest for them, which, to be fair, most life insurance companies deal with as well. Uh, now back in Atlanta, Pace is uh, involved in the city's black community. Uh, he serves as the first president of the city's chapter of the NAACP uh, with Walter White as its secretary. Walter White uh, later becomes president of the NAACP, like the entire thing. He's the president of the NAACP for many, many years. Uh, yes, he has the same name as a Breaking Bad guy, so if you ever Google Walter White, you're probably going to get Breaking Bad, so make sure you put Walter White NAACP. Uh, Walter White... Looks a lot like my dad. Um, he is, I believe, one sixteenth black. I mean, granted, in this time period, people are taking using the one drop rule. Uh, it's also in Atlanta where Pace gets married in nineteen seventeen. He marries Ethelyn Bibb. Uh, he has two children with Bibb, and he also gets pretty close with Bibb's mother. Um, Bibb's mother lives with him for quite a while. Uh, also, Bibb is buried in this. Uh, Miss Bibb, yeah. Uh, his mother-in-law is also buried in the same grave as he is. It's he, his wife, and his mother-in-law are buried in the same uh, grave, same plot. They have the same tombstone. Uh, he's buried in the Bronx. Uh, also, while he's in Atlanta, Pace is still talking to Dubois. Um, really, really does stuff in Georgia. Gets really involved with the NAACP. However, once uh, Pace and Handy gets successful enough for him to move to New York in 1920, that's when he moves. However, that same year, Pace dissolves the partnership so he can work on his own enterprise, the Pace Phonograph Company. Now, why does he get into phonographs in 1920? Well, pretty interesting reason. Um, indulge me for just a second. Uh... Before 1919, if you wanted to make a phonograph, like a record, you had to own the process. Like, there were patents, which would make sure that certain companies had access to all records. Uh, basically, before 1919, there were three record companies in, t in totality. There was Columbia, Victor, and Edison to a much lesser extent. Edison was the first to make the phonograph. However, Columbia and Victor uh, patented two new processes. However, in 1919, um, this lawsuit pretty much broke up the monopoly. It said that uh, if you want to make a record, you could use earlier processes. You didn't have to, you know, make an entirely new process. And so pretty much out of, within the year, tons of record companies sprung up all over the place. Um, of which 
is Black Swan. Now, in Pace's telling of why, he claimed that he was upset by white record companies like Columbia and Victor purchasing the rights to their jazz and blues songs that uh, Pace and Handy made and recording them with white artists. Uh, this is not unusual in the time period. Uh, they called them coon songs. The idea being that you're going to take a white artist and have them sing in a black fashion, uh, like minstrel shows or something like that. Uh, Pace said that it was his job to contact all these phonograph companies so that our numbers could, might be recorded from time to time. Quote, I ran up against a color line that was very severe. I therefore determined to form my own company and make such recordings I believe would sell. Now, it's pretty interesting that he does this because he is already in business with W.C. Handy. And W.C. Handy is a very well-known name in the music circles. Not so much in recorded music yet, but I mean, the, the, the Handy name is well-known. And actually, Pace seeks out Dubois' help in this. Uh, not necessarily with Handy, though. Uh, Dubois suggests the name Black Swan uh, to, to honor uh, Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield. She was known as a Black Swan. She is an African-American opera singer. And uh, the, even though the company was called the Pace Phonograph Corporation, uh, the name Black Swan would be used as a trade name and trademark and design. And Dubois utilizes the crisis and his position with the NAACP to really promote this new record label quite a bit. Uh, it was incorporated in the early part of 1921, initial capital stock of uh, $30,000. Uh, the original board of directors was Dubois, uh, Johnny Nail, who's a real estate agent who owns much of Harlem. Uh, he gets criticized as a slumlord later on. Uh, Dr. Matthew Boat, he is a musician, a physician, he's a doctor. Uh, Viola Bibb, who is his mother-in-law, also the uh, wife of Joseph Bibb, who's a prominent member of the AME Church, and Pace himself. Uh, none of these people really know a lot about making records, but they do personify this black upper-middle class which Pace really wants to embody. And he also draws a lot upon the staff of the Pace and Handy Music Company, with the exception of Handy. Uh, even though they've been together for nine years, Pace does not include Handy as a business partner or an artist. Um, he just severs all ties with Handy. Now, it may be because the Pace and Handy Music Company was having some debt, um, and also Pace kind of leaves Handy holding the bag. Uh, later on in life, they would reconcile uh, after Black Swan's very short tenure. They would, they would indeed reconcile. Uh, the label starts up pretty small. It is housed in the basement of Pace's house on uh, West 38th Street in New York. And although he was able to get um, music space, he's able to get recording space, the production is a bit more complicated. <coughs> Pace does not have the resources to purchase a, per a pressing plant outright. And so he actually strikes a deal with the Wisconsin Chair Company of Port Washington, Wisconsin, who actually has their own record labels. It has Paramount and Puritan. I'm not going to get into why a furniture company is a record company as well, but basically at this time period, 
Uh, record players were pretty pricey pieces of equipment. They're about two hundred dollars in nineteen twenty money, which is a few thousand dollars in today money. <coughs> they were they were treated as fine pieces of furniture. There was something that was supposed to be expensive, and so the Wisconsin Chair Company is one of the ones that um, sell this. Now, in exchange uh, for a copy of the re- uh, recordings, masters, I was. It was willing to press Black Swan Records at a plant that they had in Minnesota. Even though it's a Wisconsin chair company, they had one in Minnesota. Actually, it's in Wisconsin. Uh Uh-oh. Basically, Black Swan would utilize the Port Washington, Wisconsin facilities um, in the way that Paramount and the Wisconsin chair company used New York. Um, records would be recorded in New York City, the masters would be sent over to Wisconsin, and then they would be pressed and distributed throughout the country from Wisconsin. So basically, Pace is contracting out to another record company for production and manufacturing. Now, Pace initially does not want to do this. Uh, He is afraid by how far that Wisconsin is from New York. But he goes along with it because, well, it's the cheapest, and also they were willing to do business with a colored company. Now, the distance between New York and Wisconsin results in an extended delay between the recording and release of the records. Uh, Pace was actually initially grateful for the deal. He wanted to get things started. Maybe later on he could buy his own records. Now, the first records released in May of 1921, they're opera arias. Um, Pace is really pushing this idea that Black Swan is going to be a high-class record company. They're going to produce African-Americans singing opera, singing, you know, gospel music, and not modern gospel, but, like, religious music, for a primarily black audience. It's very much for a middle-class, upper-class audience. Um, The advertising that he does really presses this as well. And... Through Black Swan Records, Harry Pace believed that the growing, educated, urban black middle class could demonstrate their worth to white America by showing their appreciation for certain genres of art and entertainment, particularly music. Um, Pace's opening announcement for the founding of Black Swan and the Chicago Defender demonstrates these ideals. Uh, The advertisement identifies Black Swan as, quote, the only company using racial artists in recording high-class song records. This company made the only grand opera records ever made by Negroes. End quote. The stated purpose of Black Swan was to demonstrate that black persons were not only capable of creating high culture, such as spirituals and opera arias, but they also had the purchasing power to keep the company profitable by producing such records. Pace reiterates his financial error uh, angle in the Chicago Defender announcement. Quote, Black Swan is the only bona fide racial company making talking machine records. All stockholders are colored. Our artists are colored. Our employees are colored. End quote. Though such uh, genres such as blues and jazz would be included on Black Swan's repertoire of releases, they were not highlighted in these initial advertisements, which appealed to a more cosmopolitan, refined taste. Uh, jazz music, uh, in particular, is viewed as low-class, dirty. There's all sorts of different um, critics in the black community who are saying things that this is not good for the race, it's not helping anybody to listen to jazz music, it's too sexual, it's too deviant. 
Now, as this company goes on, it's not doing that great. Um, at first, the, the first slate of comp of uh, of records aren't doing that wonderful. Um, until Ethel Waters comes to do the scene. Now, Ethel Waters is Black Swan's first star report uh, performer. Her she really puts Black Swan on the map. Uh, she later on becomes uh, she signs with other record labels. She's pretty well known in early 1920s music. Uh, she is very, 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 very popular. Um, she records, you know, Down Home Blues and Oh Daddy. They're uh, kind of jazzy-ish numbers. Uh, not not full jazz, but it, it's definitely not one of the high-class numbers. It's a very tight orchestration. In my book, I talk a lot about how the orchestrations for Black Swan Records are very, very tightly done. In fact, uh, Ethel Waters didn't like Fletcher Henderson, who did mostly the arranging for Black Swan, because he would not play in, quote, a damn-it-all-to-hell style. Uh, she wants music that's more you know, wild and gritty, and he's making sure it's very refined. Uh, Fletcher Henderson is classically trained. He doesn't mess around with it. Now, uh, Ethel Waters, big deal. Her first record sells about half a million copies in six months. Um, Pace initially only played Ethel Waters $150, and he made a lot of money off of her at first. Now, granted, they do do a contract. Um, it expands the offices. They do a tour with Ethel Waters and the Black Swan Troubadours, uh, going through the, the, the Chitlin Circuit, through the South, 21 states, uh, going as far west as Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, Pace hires uh, Lester Walton, who's a publicist, to like really punch up the tour. Starts making all sorts of crazy advertisements, crazy stories about how, you know, Harry Pace has just signed Ethel Waters to the biggest contract in music history. However, has a clause that she can't get married, and there are all these suitors that are upset about it. Yeah, purely BSing. Uh, but still, it's just trying to get early 1920s publicity. Um, she is still getting about $150 per side for her records, and by 1924, she kind of gets poached by a bigger record label, which is not unsurprising. That's kind of the history of uh, music labels half the time, is if you're a small label who gets a big artist, you're going to get poached. Uh, Columbia offers uh, Ethel Waters $250 a side, and also... Uh, higher percentage of the cut. Um, Ethel Waters later on has a pretty good career. She gets in show business a little bit. Uh, her last year, she sings uh, with the Billy Graham Crusade. Uh, she's very well known for her song For His Eyes on the Sparrow. She's not the one to make the song. She's the one to make it famous. Uh, fun, weird fact, uh, whenever Billy Graham came to Baton Rouge uh, in the 1970s as part of the Billy Graham Crusade and they did a service in Tiger Stadium, uh, Ethel Waters was one of the performers. And I know this because whenever I started doing this work, my mom told me, oh yeah, Ethel Waters. I sang with her once. And I was like, what? Really? You sang with Ethel Waters? And she's like, yeah, Billy Graham. And I was like, oh, eh, okay, that's neat. And about last year, actually before last year, uh, 18 months ago or so, I found a video on YouTube of Ethel Waters singing of Tiger Stadium, and you can see my parents in the background. Now, granted, it's a big crowd shot. It's not like it's just my mom, dad, and Ethel Waters up there singing. It's a, it's a big, big choir, and Ethel Waters is in the front. In fact, the the choir's in the stands, and Ethel Waters is you know on the on the uh, on the stage. 
But you can see my mom and dad in the background, so that's that's kind of a cute little video. So, yeah, I have a little personal connection. Now, Black Swan's doing really good. They're really promoting their their uh, their music. Um, now, it's kind of interesting because they're still dealing with the distance. Uh, you know, they're recording music in New York, but they're having it shipped to Wisconsin. And Pace is looking for a way to find a pressing plant in New York. But at the same time, he's catching beef with Marcus Garvey. Now, Marcus Garvey is another big name in early 20th century black history. He is he's a Jamaican immigrant, uh, comes to embody pan-Africanism, black nationalism. He has a back-to-Africa movement. Uh, the UNIA, United Negro Improvement Association, is one of his things. Uh, he does not like W.E.B. Du Bois at all. He does not like the NAACP. Uh, Marcus Garvey says that the NAACP stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Certain People. He, um, yeah, they... <laughs> Garvey does not get along with uh, Du Bois, and Garvey does not get along with Pace. Now, at first, Garvey and Pace were kind of on the same page. Uh, Pace gave a speech at Garvey's New York Liberty Hall in early 1922, but in time, Garvey does not get in any... <laughs> they don't like each other. Um, in fact, uh, Pace signs a, a letter to the Attorney General saying that Marcus Garvey needs to be deported because he is the most dangerous person in all of America. Uh, Garvey responds by saying that the NAACP is nothing but a bunch of quadroons married... Sorry, he says of his critics who wrote the letter... They're nothing but a bunch of quadroons married to octoroons, which is almost certainly singling out Pace by name, because Pace was indeed a quadroon who was married to an octoroon. His wife, Ethelyn, was um, an octoroon, which is one-eighth African-American. So they're catching all sorts of beef. It's, it's, it's kind of funny just to see how much Garvey doesn't like him. Uh, Garvey would later on be deported. Actually, Garvey loses a lot of... Um, support within the African-American community once he starts taking meetings with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, the idea being like, hey, Marcus Garvey wants to go back to Africa, and the Klan wants us wants uh, African-Americans out of America too. This is going to be wonderful. And most African-Americans are like, dude, that's the Klan. You should not be talking to them. Now, it is the Klan of the 1920s, which tried to be quote-unquote respectable. I'll talk about the Klan of the 20s later um, in another podcast, but... Uh, it's still the clan. It's still the clan. So, in spite of this, everything seems to be going pretty well. Uh, Black Swan is making records with the success of Ethel Waters. They're making less opera arias, more jazz and blues records. Um, it, it pretty much the financial stability of the company depends upon this. But still, this, this whole arrangement of shipping his masters over to Wisconsin to be recorded was not good for Pace. And so he finally finds that um, there's a record label that just went out in New York City, uh, in Long Island. It was called... 
the Olympic Disc Record Corporation, a subsidiary of the Remington Phonograph Corporation. It goes out of business in early 1922. And John Fletcher, he's a white man who is the uh, former executive for this record label, actually goes in the business with Pace. They jointly uh, go together with a new company called the Fletcher Recording Company, and it purchases the, the Olympics facility in Long Island, which includes a recording studio and a pressing plant. And it, this, this uh, pressing plant could make 6,000 records a day, which was ideal for Black Swan's growing sales. And the deal with Remington also includes Olympics trademark and masters of old recordings. Now, for Pace, this deal makes perfect sense. A New York-based facility that was owned by Black Swan would save the company a tremendous amount of money. And although this initial purchase might be costly, Black Swan's records were popular and they were selling well. And additionally, Black Swan would also acquire Olympic's back catalog and could reissue the Masters under Black Swan's own label, which was a very common practice. Um, recording records was expensive, and a lot of record companies found out that, hey, we could just buy the Masters of other record companies and like put it under our own name, change a couple names. Uh, this is really common with records from... Uh, Europe. There was a lot of record companies in America that would buy the masters from European artists, change the name a little bit, eh, copyright law, who cares? And it was a very common practice. Now, doing so might undermine Black Swan's stated racial goals for the company as, quote, the only exclusive colored records, but it would also mean the company would be more financially solvent and ultimately survive. No matter how honorable the racial goal, Black Swan's profitability had to go first. Now, it does also kind of undermine this idea that Black Swan was entirely uh, African-American-owned because now John Fletcher is a senior executive. Actually, technically, he owns the company. Uh, Pace serves as vice president. But Black Swan's the only label that does anything at this new pressing plant. Uh, Fletcher is a rarity in the 1920s. He's the only white executive that I was able to find willing to to work with a black company or an individual in the space that he and Pace are almost equal partners. Now, although white companies start hiring more black musicians and black, um, and increasing black records, uh, they don't do so with African-Americans in seniority. Uh, most record labels are lily white. Their A&R is white for the most part. And for most white record labels, partnering with a black individual in order to lend credibility to their releases was an action deemed unnecessary for profitability. Now, the problem is, even though Pace made the move and things were going pretty well for the company, uh, the second half of 1922 is very challenging for Black Swan Records. Um, even as late as November of 22, Pace is still trying to secure capital, pay off the purchase's bond. Uh, also... By 1922, Ethel Waters had stopped recording exclusively on Black Swan, so their biggest star's gone. And Columbia, Brunswick, Victor, and other uh, labels start issuing blues and jazz artists uh, done by black artists on their record label. So Black Swan proved that there was a market, and then other companies have come in. Now, Faced with rising um, expenses in an increasingly crowded market, in the fall of 1922, Pace began re-releasing songs recorded on Olympic records, of which the Fletcher Record Company owned the masters. This was not an uncommon move. However, what's interesting is that Harry Pace 
change the name of the records he released of the artist so that they would sound like black names. Now, this is no, this is not unusual. Pace had done this since early 1921, recording white artists and issuing them under black names. Uh, for instance, uh, white soprano Eileen Stanley, recorded as the alto Mamie Jones. Uh, Coon songs, like I said, were not uncommon. It was weird for Pace to do it, but the scale goes up tremendously once Pace uh, purchases Olympic Record. Now, the exact number of how many of Black Swan's releases in this time period were actually uh, white artists released under black names is uh, debatable. Um, based on my own research, I would say it was probably about one-fifth or so of all Black Swan's releases were actually white artists under black names. Now, this was fairly unnoticed by his contemporaries. Uh, Pace doesn't really talk too much about it. Dubois doesn't mention it. Um, Fletcher Henderson, who has a pretty high position within the company, he doesn't really seem to know about it. Uh, nobody really seems to know too much about it. Uh, Garvey doesn't say anything about it, and if Garvey knew about it, he would have totally said something about it. And... It initially does aid the record label. Uh, by early 1923, Black Swan is selling around uh, 7,000 records a day. However, there is a lag in production because, yeah, they're, sell they're selling 7,000 records, but their production can only make 6,000 records a day. So there's a lag in production, which causes orders to be canceled. And so Pace does something which seems to make sense, but... As a lot of people who've had failed businesses can tell you, sometimes success is not good for your company. Pace buys three more record presses. They're very expensive, but Pace believes, hey, we have a lot of production, you know, we have a lot of orders coming in, we need the production, it's going to help us. Unfortunately, this came at the worst time for the record industry as a whole. Because radio starts to really overshadow phonographs and popularity. Now, this expansion of radio causes sales of records to plummet industry-wide. Um, in early 1923, Black Swan is selling about 7,000 records a day. By, <coughs> by the spring of that year, so only a few months later, they're selling about 3,000 records daily. Then by the summer, it's down to 1,000 records daily. And they, uh, that's about time where they have to shut down the factory. And this is just when Harry Pace bought three brand new record presses, so to keep up with the demand. Just he, there was no way he could have known. Now, why do why is radio so popular? Uh, radio does not have very good sound quality in this time period. But the thing is, it costs about the same to get a record player as it does a radio. A radio is also two hundred dollars. Now, a record player is two hundred dollars, but you have to buy the records themselves, which costs anywhere from a quarter to a dollar. Whereas with a radio, you get unlimited music. Additionally, with a record player, you only get one song. And it's just, you know, one song, one short song. You know, two minutes or so. With a radio, you get unlimited songs. And this corresponds with the expansion of the factory. Now, Black Swan's in very bad states. Uh, by July 25th of 1923, Pace is like, yo, things are going really awful. He blames the fact that other record labels have stolen his artist. The drop in sales and mounting debts. Uh, he, he, he does spring, you know, Hope Spring does it, uh, eternal for him. He does think that things are going to come up. 
Uh, that being said, this is also the time wherever he starts really catching beef with uh, Marcus Garvey. And it's really not doing well for Pace. Uh, ultimately, he does go bankrupt. Black Swan Records goes bankrupt in July of 23. Uh, sorry, they, they stop selling records in 23. They officially go bankrupt in December of 23. With the Long Island factory sold a share sale to a Chicago firm that makes records for Sears and Roebuck. Now, Pace was able to lease Black Swan's catalog to Paramount Records in May of 24, but this deal was not very profitable for either company. Uh, afterwards, Pace takes a job with the Northeastern Life Insurance Company, which is based in Chicago. Uh, Pace kept Black Swan in business with regular meetings with its board of directors uh, through the summer of 26, and he does main control over the firm's masters. He hopes that ultimately somebody would want to pick up the masters of these records, but such a revival never comes. Uh, the Northeast Life Insurance Company is based in Chicago. It gets pretty big. It gets pretty big. Um, it becomes like the biggest African-American-owned um, life insurance company. And uh, it does really well. Like uh, It has assets of $150,000. It has $1.7 million in insurance. Uh, they merge in 1929 with three other life insurance companies, well, two other life insurance companies, Liberty Life of Chicago, Supreme Life and Casualty of Columbus, and Northeastern Life. This combined company takes the name of Supreme Life and Supreme Liberty Life Insurance Company, based in Chicago. He's become president of this merge entry, and he moves to Chicago in 1930. I'm sorry, beforehand, when I said he was in Chicago, actually meant he was in New Jersey. And after going to uh, sorry, after getting to Chicago in 1930, Harry Pace goes to law school at the University of Chicago. He's actually one of the first black students in an otherwise uh, white program. Uh, he graduates in 1933. He gives a commencement address. He gives a commencement address to the uh, racial combined graduating class. And the interest in law surprises his employees at Supreme Liberty Life. Because they only knew him as president of a life insurance company. They didn't necessarily realize that he was uh, spending his nights and weekends, uh, you know, going to law school. And his law school, his legal practice doesn't really interfere with his responsibilities as president of the company. Now, it's also during this time that Pace either joined, founded, or allowed himself to be affiliated with a law firm of Bibb, Tyree, and Pace. Uh, Joseph Bibb is the brother, is his brother-in-law. It's his wife, Ethelene's um, brother, Ethelene's brother. Uh, and he had actually been involved as a salesperson at Black Swan prior to moving to Chicago and passing the bar. And the office of Bibb, Tyree, and Pace was located within the Supreme Liberty Life Insurance Company building on South Parkway Boulevard in Chicago, which also houses the insurance company. Uh, by being in the same building, he's able to both practice law and be president of a life insurance company. And it's actually another weird dink that Pace gets involved in another major civil rights-y thing. Uh, there's a very famous call, case called Hansberry versus Lee, which is about basically uh, racial covenants in Chicago. Um, in Chicago in this time period, actually not just Chicago, in a lot of northern cities, which didn't necessarily have Jim Crow legally codified segregation, uh, neighborhoods would have what's called covenants. Basically, if you, kind of like a homeowners association thing, if you're a white person who moved into a neighborhood, you had to sign a covenant which said that you would not sell your house to a black individual. 
Now, this case involves Carl Hansberry. He's a black man in Chicago's Washington Park subdivision, which is very close to Washington Park and also University of Chicago. Uh, Ann Lee is, is a white homeowner in the neighborhood. She brings up the case against Hansberry, uh, saying that basically Hansberry being able to buy a house in this neighborhood violates the covenant. I'm not going to get into the legalese. Just know it's a very, very big, important um, uh, civil rights case. Now, the Supreme Life Insurance Company was a co-defendant as Supreme Life had issued the mortgage for Hansberry's house. Uh, actually, the Supreme Life Insurance Company had issued two mortgages. Now, is this common for a life insurance company to in, uh, issue a mortgage? The answer is no. It's really not common for a life insurance company to issue a mortgage. Now, the case would ultimately go to the Supreme Court, like the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court, in 1940. It ruled in favor of Hansberry, and Hansberry's daughter, Lee uh, Lorraine, would actually dramatize her experiences living through the case in the play A Raising in the Sun. Yes. A Raising in the Sun is based upon this case, uh, explicitly, because the daughter of the defendant is the writer of the play. Now, Pace is called to testify in Chicago in 1938, and it really provides an interesting look at his psyche. So Pace is a lawyer, and he's on the stand, and he's using every legal trick in the book. Now, Pace freely answered questions about his background, uh, the, co the composition of his life insurance company. He gets squirrely about details which would imply a conspiracy between the company and Hansberry to challenge the covenants. Um, you know, basically, for his company to be involved in a conspiracy to challenge the law, that could be bad for the company. Pace claims to be president of the company and responsible for all its financial decisions, which he says under oath. Um... But he said that the decision to, to loan the mortgage to Hansberry was made by the board as a whole, and Pace was not there. Which is crazy. He was like, oh yeah, I'm president of the board, I'm in charge of all financial decisions, but, oh yeah, no, the board made that decision, I wasn't around. And whenever pressed as if this was standard practice of the agency, Pace denied that it was, but he never gives a true explanation as why the mortgage would not go through the standard approval process. And also, why is a life insurance company issuing mortgages in the first place? It's obvious that Pace was acting oblivious about the Hansberry mortgage in order not to implicate any collusion between Standard Life and Hansberry to challenge the covenant. Now, here's what's really interesting. Uh, in this deposition, Pace is asked about the race of Joseph Bibb, and Pace becomes defensive. Pace responds to the question if Bibb was a colored man with, well, I think he is in a general appearance white. I don't mean to call anybody names. I'll tell you what I am, but I will let you tell him what he is, end quote. When initially asked if he himself was a Negro, Pace similarly rebuffed the question. Well, that would be a con conclusion on my part. I'm commonly known as a colored person. You may form your own conclusion, please. When Pace finally did assert to the court that he was indeed colored, he did so with a caveat that implied class. Although Pace might have darker colored skin, he refused to play into the narrative that he was a person of low respectability. But other elements are simply bizarre. For instance, Pace is asked if he is a member of the law firm of Pib, Tyree, and Pace. Okay, his name is on the... It is the law firm of Pib, Tyree, and Pace. That's the name of the law firm. And Pace denies membership, even though he is part of the firm's name. Furthermore, he states he had never practiced law as part of the firm and instead keeps his own office one floor down from his executive office at the Supreme Liberty Life Insurance Company, where he served as president. 
When pressed about why Pace's name would be on the law, the door of a separate law firm, this, okay, this, okay, hold on. Pace has asked, okay, you practice law at your own office, but why is your name on the door of another law firm, uh, supposedly other law firm? Um, Pace states that Bibb asked if it was permissible to put Pace's name on the door and window of the firm, and Pace stated that he said no objection to doing so, which is just ludicrous. If, if, hi, I'd like to put your name on my law firm. Oh, okay, I practice law elsewhere, but I'll let you put my name on it. And when an opposing lawyer, who pretty much has Pace dead to right, says, hey, why does your name appear in the 1936 Illinois Law Directory as member and partner in the firm, Pace claims that his name should not have been of appeared. When asked if he still saw Bibb, Pace claimed that although Bibb worked in the same building as Pace and his brother-in-law, he had not seen him to three to four months. Now, this is just very, very interesting because... <laughs> Pace's ambivalence towards race in his testimonies in stark contrast to his public image as a proud supporter of African Americans in Chicago. Even Pace's involvement with the Hansberry case is framed through media. Uh, there is a great, great, great uh, picture in Chicago's Metropolitan Post in December 18, 1939. It show, it's a photograph that shows Pace and Earl B. Dickinson, the chief counsel for the defense in the case of Hansberry v. Lee, reading over the transcripts of the, Il the Supreme Court of Illinois' record of the case. And so he's he's getting involved in media about this case, even though his, his testimony is saying kind of weird, ambivalent stuff. Uh, in 1939, Pace gives the commencement address at Atlanta University and urges the graduates to act as leaders for the race. Also, Pace was impressed enough with a young John H. Johnson, uh, who John H. Johnson gives a speech at the Urban League of Chicago and invites the budding entrepreneur to come by the Standard Liberty Life Office. Now, John Johnson... Uh, later forms the Negro Digest, which later becomes known as Ebony and Jet Magazine. Uh, yes, the guy who formed Ebony and Jet Magazine was like a protege of Pace. Uh, later on said that, um, you know, his first time going into Pace's office at Standing Liberty Life was a life-changing moment because it was a place where all the employees were black. Uh, Johnson would say, quote, I heard about black corporations, but I'd never seen one up close. Now, suddenly, I was surrounded by black clerks, salesmen, and money managers. And just like that, lights went in my head in my life. But behind the public persona of a proud champion for the race, uh, Pace's private life was becoming more and more immersed in white culture. I mentioned before, uh, the Standard Life Insurance Company issued two mortgages. The first was the Hansberry. The second was for Pace himself. And he bought a house on East 60th Street, also in the Washington Park subdivision near the University of Chicago. Now, due to either his complexion or the urging of his wife and children, the Pace family did not cause a stir in Washington Park as the Hansberries did, because they started to pass. Uh, passing is basically when a black person, or a, well, not necessarily a black person, well, you can call him a black person, when a person who was previously known as black, probably a person of mixed or very light complexion, uh starts passing themselves as a white person. Pace had always had a very fair complexion. Likewise, uh, his wife was an even lighter complexion. And his uh, children were of supremely light complexion. 
fact, uh, Pace and Pace would never talk about why he passed in of himself, but Dubois and Johnson put a lot of emphasis on the children as the reason why. Uh, Johnson said that basically once Pace's children went out of state for college and they started wanting to get married and stuff, uh, they were worried about their, you know, their betrothed meeting their parents and finding out that they were black and it would sabotage the entire relationship. So he keeps up this facade. And it's not just for, like, private stuff. Uh, the 1940 census lists the entire family living on 60th Street with all four members listed as white. Uh, Johnson also reports that Pace went as far to remove all newspapers and magazines of black interest from his house as to keep up the perception of a white family. Now, the hypocrisy of keeping a black home life and a work life as a proponent of black values was not lost on Pace's employees. Uh, Pace faced fierce criticism from workers from Standard Liberty Life. Um, he was actually outed by his employees. Basically, his employees came to his office. Actually, they came to his house. They started, like, starting a little bit of a rough rigmarole. Uh, Pace dies shortly after this. In 1943, Pace dies. Um, neither Johnson nor Dubois really condemns Pace for their decision to pass for white or let their taint their memory of a dear friend. Uh, in 1944, that Pace is talked about in the letter that Dubois wrote to a friend. Uh, basically, he says nothing but nice things about Pace. And he mentions, like, I think Pace has a brother somewhere in Texas, but I don't know. Uh, Johnson speaks pretty highly. Um, he does not think very much of Pace's children. Uh, he claims that their fa- he was, they were the reason why their father passed in the first place. And they don't really honor his uh, his memory after the funeral because after the funeral they quote sold the supreme stock and disappeared from the black limelight. Uh, his children, Harry Pace Jr. and Josephine, lived their lives as white individuals, keeping quiet about their black background. Uh, Harry Pace Jr. is an interesting case because when Harry Pace Jr. dies in I believe like two thousand eight or so, somewhere in the early two thousands, uh, on his deathbed, and his name is Harry Pace Jr. Like, he never changes his name, Harry Pace Jr. He tells his family, uh, BT Dubs, not only are am I black, or, you know, I'm a partial black, my dad was a really big name in the black world, uh, Harry Pace Jr.'s grandson has done some work trying to talk about the legacy of Harry Pace as just a pretty important individual. Josephine, likewise, she died not too long ago. I believe she died in 2013, 2014. She lived most of her life around Kansas. Um, her obituary does mention, you know, her parents as, you know, Harry and Ethelyn Pace of Chicago. They don't mention anything about her race. But from the correspondence I've had with their uh, great-grandchildren, who are pretty much entirely white, they do talk about their black ancestry and history. And uh, it it is... Race is a very very compelling thing. It's, 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 it's not easy to talk about. It's, it's not cut and dry. And Harry Pace, you know, from 1884 to 19, to, to 1943, he's got a pretty interesting life. And as you see, he overlaps with a lot of different things. So I hope y'all enjoy this for Tully's Take on History. I'm Dr. Stuart Tully. Have a good one.